hear something? I know he has. It doesn't have to be, you know, sometimes when we do this, I think we think of what, what can I say that's profound, you know? What can I say that really is uh, big, you know? But could be a little thing, could be just a simple word. What's God done in your life? Hank. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Very good. Who else? Amen. Amen. That's good, man. Praise the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Anybody else? Oh, it was so good to meet her. That's great. Anyone else? Amen. That's good. Who else? Wonderful. Yes, no doubt about it. Anybody else? Yeah. Amen. Dad always said he'd have had his first if he'd have known how fun it is. Doesn't quite work that way, though, does it? Melissa, I saw your hand a minute ago. Good. Amen. Amen. It's, it's a blessing when your children, your grandchildren, for some of you, do well, isn't it? You, you have to be thankful for that. I, um, we have a text group that's what we call the whole family, which is myself and Amy and Alistair and my sister and her children and son-in-law and my brother-in-law. And so every now and then we just put something out there. So my oldest son did earlier this week, and it was just a photo of his um, dean's list letter for the semester. So always grateful for that. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Amen. Very good. Any more? All right, bow your heads with me, and uh, we'll start with adoration as we do. So take a few moments just from your heart or whisper it, whatever you're comfortable with, and adore God for who He is.
confession, should you need to take a moment, take it right now just to confess to the Lord whatever you feel you should. Thanksgiving, aren't you thankful for your blessings and thankful for what we just prayed through, that we have a God who hears our confessions and forgives us from all unrighteousness. Take a moment and thank Him. Now let's conclude this prayer time by praying for our needs, our personal needs, and the needs of those that we know about in our lives. Lord, how good it is to come together and share testimonies of your grace and goodness in our lives. Thank you, Father, for each report of praise, for each person that was represented in those reports. And Father, thank you that you're a God that does not forget us, that is ever mindful of us, that gives us what we need when we need it. We praise you for that tonight. Thank you, Lord that we have this warm place to come into, to fellowship together, to pray together, and, Father, to study, to show ourselves approved. And I pray, Father, that tonight you would take this content and help us to learn it and appreciate it so that, Father, when we approach your word and we study it, God, it would be even richer to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the light to our feet, the lamp to our path. And God, we do humbly submit ourselves to it. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. And amen. I am going to read the traditional passage to get us started tonight. I thought a moment ago, you know, we've talked so much about prophecies and fulfillment of prophecies and course, Sunday morning during our morning Christmas Eve service, we will uh, focus on the, the ultimate thing God did for us through Jesus in that He gave His life for our sins as we take together the Lord's Supper. So we haven't really read through the first few verses of the Christmas traditional passage. And so I want to start with that tonight because it speaks into the content that we'll look at. You know the passage, Luke chapter 2, 
I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 7, through verse 7. Scripture says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with his Mary, or with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, there in beautiful fashion, Luke tells us about the birth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And tonight, I want to lead you through a study of the King of Bethlehem because what you see in Scripture is really a contrast between an earthly king and a heavenly king. And as I said a moment ago, I want to share with you some things that will help you maybe pull some authenticity into the way you view and think about Christmas. You know, as we had some fun together the last three weeks and uh, went through several questions and several Bible passages, both Old and New Testament, I think we were reminded, if we weren't reminded, we learned that maybe that image that we have of Christmas, you know, being in a red New England barn with the snowflakes falling down and a manger built out of wood and just the right look to the shepherds and the little baby and Joseph and Mary and then, of course, throw in the wise guys and all of that thing into the mix. I I think we learned over the last few weeks that the original Christmas really didn't look much like that at all. And just to get us started, let me show you a picture and ask you a question. What is this? Yeah, I think I heard somebody say a manger. So that is a manger that dates back to about the time of Christ. I didn't take this particular picture in Bethlehem because, you know, modern Bethlehem is just that. It's it's a modern city and a lot of traffic and a lot of people moving about. And so you're not going to find a manger that looks just like the one that Christ would have been laid in in Bethlehem these days. I actually took this picture uh, up in northern Israel uh, at a place where Solomon built, um, a place that is a gorgeous place that overlooks the Jezreel Valley that we know will be the Valley of Armageddon. took that picture up on Megiddo and 
had a moment there while people wasn't standing around it, and I thought, you know, I want to take that just so I can share with others to get that visualization of what a manger would have looked like. So when we just read the story from Luke 2, that is the image. That's the manger. And of course, you know what the manger was for. What was the purpose of a manger? Feed trough, watering trough. Uh, Some mangers, and I don't have a good picture of one of these, some of them will have a metal band around the bottom, the base part of the manger with a hook on there where uh, someone could come and tie up a donkey or a horse and they would be there and eat or drink, whatever the purpose of the particular manger was. But yeah, it's a place that was hewn out of a rock. You know, Israel's a very rocky country and most of the ancient things that you see there are either made out of clay or out of stone. And so that's what they would do. They'd take a big boulder and chisel it down and ultimately chisel that hollow place in the top where an animal could come and eat or drink and be also just a perfect place that if there was a somewhat unexpected delivery where a mother could wrap up a baby and maybe put some hay or straw down in it and with the swaddling clothes around that baby, place it there in the manger. So I just wanted you to see what a manger looks like if you hadn't seen a picture quite like that. So I'm going to take us on a journey tonight. Now, where is this? Who knows what you're looking at right now? Well, you're sitting there. So that's us. That's Bible Baptist Church right here in Mount Vernon, Kentucky. And so we're going to lift up off the ground by the help of Google Earth. And we're going to rise up above North America in just a moment. We're going to start flying. Somebody mentioned flying over there a moment ago. But we're going to fly over to the Middle East. And as we begin to focus in on that eastern shore of the Mediterranean Israel comes in view. You see the Dead Sea there. And we're going to bring the focus right in to the popular town that's often discussed this time of the year, Bethlehem. Now you see there in the center of Bethlehem, I'm going to get out my pointer so I can uh, point and show you what I'm talking about. You can see my little dot on the screen, I hope. So this area here, is literally right in the center of even modern Bethlehem. And I spoke about this very briefly this Sunday night. That is the church of the Holy Sepulcher. It was the place that was built over what has been traditionally viewed as Christ's birthplace in Bethlehem from all the way back in the second century. Now this part there, where my pointer is, that is the very, very old part of the church. This over here, you can see the cross shape. That is a more modern Catholic church, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So here we are in Bethlehem. It's where the story takes place, 
But as I said earlier, there is this contrast in the story between the coming of King Jesus and another king. Now, who is that other king? Not a trick question. Yeah, I saw it mouthed back there. That other king is Herod. I want you to see where both Matthew and Luke, as they begin to flesh out the Christmas narrative, they both want us to know that Jesus came into a region of the world that was looked over. I won't say ruled because he really didn't rule, but at least he looked over it. And, of course, this man's name is Herod. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the details of the Christmas story come to us from Matthew and then Luke. Of course, Mark, he just starts uh, right out of the gate with the earthly ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, John, when you get there to John 1, John takes a very theological approach and tells us about how Jesus was the Word that eternally existed with God. But both Matthew and Luke want us to know the details of how Christ came into the world. And aren't we thankful for Matthew and Luke's contribution through the illumination of the Holy Spirit? But when Matthew begins to tell the Christmas story, this is what he says. He says, now after Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. And that's all I want you to see from that verse and that passage. How many of you believe tonight that whatever the Bible says, whatever words have been recorded and preserved for us in the Word of God, whatever those words are, they're important words. We believe that. You know, as Baptists, that's one of our doctrines, the verbal plenary view of Scripture. In other words, verbal, the very word, plenary meaning all of it. So we believe that the very word and each very word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and all of it in in its wholeness as it presents the story of God and God's work with humanity. We believe it all. So I believe that it's important for us to think through what it means that Herod the Great was a factor in the Christmas story because the Bible not only mentions it once, but it also mentions it the second time, twice. As Luke begins to tell his story, and it's right out of the gate in chapter 1, you know the earlier verses of Luke 1, Luke uh, is writing to Theophilus and he says he's going to present an account of the Lord Jesus and then he starts with the Christmas story and as he begins to reveal that story, he puts it this way, there was in the days of Herod the king of Judah. So you see it twice in Scripture as you think about this Christmas story. Matthew and then Luke both talking about Herod. What do you know about this puppet king 
named Herod the Great. What have you heard about him? you have any thoughts about Herod? If you have thoughts about Herod, they're probably not good, right? Could we start there? Uh, Herod was not a good man. And furthermore, even though in the annals of history it's recorded that he was king of the Jews, Herod wasn't even a Jew to begin with. Herod was an Edomian that had uh, come down through the line of Esau. Now you have to go back to the Old Testament and be reminded of the story of Esau, but God, as he began to create a new nation, he did not do it through Esau, did he? But he did it through who? Yes, through Jacob, and Jacob would later be named what? Israel. So it's through the line of Jacob, and Esau and his descendants would ultimately settle out in the area that's modern-day Jordan, Transjordan, over to the east, and that's where Herod the Great came from. Now, I mentioned briefly in my sermon Sunday morning a little bit about the intertestamental period, which is that period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, somewhere around 400 years there, there was a dynasty that developed, that took on the Greeks at the time and became the rulers or the leaders in Jerusalem and in all of Israel. It's called the Hasmonean dynasty. And a sect, a group of that dynasty became the Herod family. So when you hear the name Herod, it's not just his name. It's not like a first name like mine's Alan. But Herod the Great came from a bigger family of Herods, and this is how politically savvy they were. The Herod dynasty, the Herod family, saw what was happening in that part of the world, and they began to form an allegiance with guess who? Who's the superpower? Rome, that's right. I heard Caesar, that's exactly right. I heard Rome... That's who it was. They began to develop this allegiance with Rome. And the bottom line is Rome uh, left them alone and allowed them to be sort of figure leaders. And so Herod the Great could never do anything that Rome did not allow him to. He was always under the subjugation of Rome. But here's the thing. He was a wicked, vile toad of a man, a terrible man. If you study anything about Herod the Great, you'll come across stories like, uh, you know, he had a few wives, but he had one particular wife that he loved the most. Now, ladies, (laughs) how would you like to be a part of a family like that, where, you know, there's different wives and they're... Uh, time is split between one another and, you know, the, the man, the husband, maybe be more affectionate toward one the, than the other. That was the case in Herod's home. And, and this wife he loved so much that you know what he did for her? Guess what 
he did for the wife that he loved the most. He murdered her. And it doesn't stand to reason, does it? But you know why he murdered her? He said because he loved her so much that he couldn't ever bear the thoughts of she being a wife to another man. That if something happened in their relationship, if he were to die, that she could go to one of his brothers or something like that. So he he murdered his favorite wife so that she could never love another man. And then he grieved the rest of his life over the death of the wife he had murdered. I mean, this is just how sick and twisted this Herod the Great is. So no wonder when during the latter part of his life and those wise men come from the east and they begin to look for this Christ child that's been born, no wonder he went to the drastic degree of having all the boys around that age in Bethlehem murdered. So, that's just a little background about Herod the Great. But, he gets that title, The Great, because he did do, from the human perspective, some really great things. I'll tell you a little detail about Herod the Great. He was an athlete. He actually competed in the Olympics. You know, the Olympics have been around a long time. Well, he was an Olympic athlete. Um, In fact, he built some great palaces, and you'll see a couple of those here in a moment, but high up on mountains, and they would develop these serpentine paths that would lead from the ground up to the mountain, and people often would think that Herod the Great, Herod the King, would have people that would carry him up those mountains, and he probably did later in his life, but until he got into his older age, he would actually race his soldiers up those mountains. And so Herod the Great was an athlete, and Herod the Great was an architect and a great builder. So many things. Listen, if you ever have the opportunity to visit Israel, nearly every time you turn around, somebody will be saying something about what Herod the Great built. So I could go on and on about Herod the Great, but, but I just want you to know a little bit about his backstory. So let's take it back to Bethlehem. Uh, a couple years ago, I got to spend an evening in Bethlehem during this time of the year. So they were getting ready for the Christmas celebration The lights there around Manger Square are obviously gorgeous. This area right there, I don't know how well my little uh, pointer is showing up, but that that is Manger Square, and I'll give you a picture of it at night with the Christmas tree up. So it's a big deal. You know, if you go to Bethlehem this time of the year, it's all about the Christian Christmas story, except for this year. And because of what's going on over there, I hear that they've canceled everything in Bethlehem. I want you to see the church that we talked about a little bit Sunday night that I mentioned earlier. This is the church of the Holy Nativity. It's the building that was built there. It's an ancient building. Um, 
I, I will remind you just very quickly, I don't want to get into the details of the history here, but Constantine had become the emperor of the eastern part of the Roman Empire prior to the year 300. The modern year was well, not modern, but A.D. 300. Constantine became a devoted Christian per se. Now, what kind of relationship with Christ he had, we don't know, but he at least legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. It wasn't before that. And so in 313, you have what we call, and you've studied this in in world history, the Edict of Milan. And that's the ruling that was made that all through the Roman Empire, not only was Christianity permitted, but it was actually encouraged. Right after that, he sent his mom, Helena, to the Holy Land, and her and her entourage began to visit all the sites across Israel. And when they got to Bethlehem, they talked to locals, and they asked, do we know exactly where Jesus was born? And so they took her and the entourage to a cave, And I'm going to show you a cave later that will be maybe somewhat similar to what it would have looked like. And so they go to this cave. It had been venerated for many years at that point. And so they believed that it was the place where Jesus was born. To protect it, the Romans built this first basilica, this cathedral that we now call the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, over that cave system. So if you were to visit Bethlehem today, to get down to the little cave where Christ was born, you have to go through this church. And let me bring my pointer down. Do you see that little door where my pointer is right now? You remember what I shared with you, those of you that were here Sunday night, that to get into the building, you can't walk. You know, you'd have to be a very um, vertically challenged person to get through the door. Most people have to bend over quite drastically to get in the door. And the purpose of that, of course, is because the architect said, if people are going to come through this basilica, and go down to the cave and visit the place where Christ was born, they're going to have to be humble. They're going to have to bow down exactly to get to the site of the King of Kings where he was born. Uh, Here's a picture of my son. I took him there when he was 13 years old and was able to get a couple of photos of him actually going in the door. He was 13 at the time, and you know, hadn't taken his big growth spurt. And so you can see even a 13-year-old has to bow down to get into the door. Now, when you get in and you get to the other side of the door, this is basically what you see. That ancient structure, and if you can follow my pointer, you can't really see it, but back behind that last column to your right, there 
is a set of steps. And you walk down those steps, and then you're underneath the building itself, and you're into the cave where the Lord Jesus was likely born. You've seen these pictures, I'm sure, before, but that's what it looks like. Do you see the steps on the right side of the image that are coming down there? Those are the steps I'm telling you about. You come down the steps, you make a right, and right there in that place, they say this was the X marks the spot, so to speak, where the Lord Jesus uh, was delivered by Mary. In the very center of that, there's this silver star. And that star has been an important thing for pilgrims when they go to the Holy Land to see for so many years now. And a lot of people will go there, bend down, touch it, say prayers. Some people will drop even written prayers down into that middle hole there in the star. That star was one time stolen and it actually started a war. But that's the spot. Here's another picture of uh, my son when he got to visit there. I've never reached back there and touched it, but you know a 13-year-old boy has to touch everything. So that's the spot. I show you that to give you a picture of what it looks like now. And the way they have all of that fine drapery and the claws and everything, you, you really can't tell it's a cave. But I want you to know it is a cave. It's a cave, it's a cave, it's a cave. And to help you see that, I'm going to take you to the other side. Do you remember in the image a moment ago, I pointed out that there's a modern Catholic church structure there on the same location as the ancient church of the Holy Nativity. Well, that's, that's the structure. And right back between those columns, in that corner, there's a set of stairs that will take you down to this, the other side of the same cave. I don't have a picture of it. I thought I did, but I couldn't locate it. But between that side of the cave and the side of the cave where that star is, there's a big metal door. It actually has a little peephole that you can look through and see that area where the star is. But I wanted to show you this. This, by the way, is called the cave or the grotto of St. Jerome. When you study church history, Jerome was the man who translated the Old Testament into what we call the Latin Vulgate. So he translated the Hebrew and the Aramaic of the Old Testament into Latin, and that opened up the Old Testament for a lot of people across the world, not just in that region, to be able to read and study the Old Testament. I show you that picture because I think you can see in that picture a cave. You see the rocks and the surroundings there, and that is just on the other side of where X marks the spot where the Lord Jesus traditionally has been thought to have been born. Show you all that to say to you one more time, Jesus and the manger, he was born, laid in that manger, and that manger was in a cave. That's what it was. Now, let's go back outside, 
And this is a picture I took from Manger Square up on a high place. And I want you to look in the background of the picture over to the left and you'll see sort of a conical shaped quote-unquote mountain. Well, that is the Herodium. It's a man-made mountain. There were two little hills there. They demolished one hill, and we're talking about in the, the late uh, BCE time, before A.D., they, they carved down that one mountain and heaped up the stones and then poured sand and created this conical platform where Herod ultimately built his favorite palace. That's the Herodium. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I just wanted you to see from Manger Square and from the area where the cave is where Jesus was born and laid into a manger just across the way from it, about three miles in the distance, is this thing that's called the Herodium. So I want to take you there. We will lift off the ground again from Manger Square, go down three miles to the south, and give you an aerial view of this man-made mountain that Herod built for one of his palaces. And this is also another interesting fact about the Herodium. He was buried there. So about 13 years ago, they actually found the burial place of Herod the Great, which is right there on the side of the Herodium, his his mountain palace. Uh, Here's an aerial shot of what it looks like. Obviously, I took this in the springtime. We used a drone, and you see the grass and everything around there. During the fall and the winter and the early part of the spring, that area is just as barren as it can possibly be. But what I want you to know is you see ruins there today, but if you were to be able to go back to the time of Christ the time when Jesus was born, the best, the very best of what the world had to offer was there on the Herodian at Herod's fingertips. This is what it looks like when you climb up to the top of it and you begin to see the ruins. Actually, in the ruins, there are some preserved things like this mosaic floor. Now imagine this, before Jesus was born, Herod could afford artisans to come in and put together that type of a mosaic. So to to think about the opulence and the lifestyle that he would have had up there is just absolutely incredible. Now, I want you to notice as we move from the Herodium down to the base of it in this next video, you're, you're going to see something else that's really spectacular. We've moved from the Herodian down toward the Dead Sea to Masada. That's another palace 
that Herod the Great had built. And then when you move up north to the edge of the Mediterranean, there is Caesarea Maritime, which is another palace that Herod had built. There are five ancient palaces that you can visit the ruins of to this day that Herod had built around the country there. So back to the Herodian, that's the view that you have now when you're up on the top of it and you begin to examine the ruins that are up there. But I want you to see an artist's rendition. If you were to be able to go back to the first century, to the time of Herod, you would see the top of the Herodium looking something like that. And then down at the base of it, there's actually a swimming pool. Do you see the the columns? And that area uh, would have been surrounded by palm trees and beautiful gardens where they had fresh water piped in, literally piped into the area. And then look right in the middle, if you'll notice if my... Yeah, right there in the middle, there, there was actually an island in that swimming pool that was roughly the size of an American football field. And so Herod and his guests would entertain themselves out there swimming, out there having boat rides, and I'll show you another artist's rendition of that area. That's what it would have looked like all the way back in the first century. At the same time, Jesus was born in what? In a cave and laid in what? Laid in a manger. Well, I'm going to wrap it up and show you a couple more pictures that I took a few years ago. So we were in Bethlehem and doing some video work and I asked one of the Bethlehemites for a favor. We hadn't planned to do it, but we had a little extra time. I said, I want you to take me to an authentic cave. Of course, he he wanted to take me back to the church of the nativity and to wait in line and go down. I said, no, I don't want to. I've done that. Many times, I want to see an undisturbed Bethlehem cave. And so we traveled outside of the center of town a little bit and went out to this area. And, uh, you know, as I'm not going to say as luck would have it because I really don't believe in luck, but as God blessed, we actually got there at a time when a modern shepherd was taking care of his flock of sheep. Now I want you to see the next picture. It's coming into view over on the right side. What do you see there? That's a cave. So I wanted you just to have an image of what the surroundings would have looked like for Mary and Joseph and Jesus And I want you to contrast and compare that to the opulence that Herod was living in just three miles away at the Herodium. I got a good picture from the inside looking out. So when the king of kings came, 
when the real king of Bethlehem came. Could have God worked something out for Jesus to have been born at the Herodium? Yeah. I believe God can do all things, right? You know, if that had been God's will and God's decree, absolutely, somehow, some way. I mean, miracles were already happening. A virgin girl conceives. Micah had prophesied that she would deliver in Bethlehem because that's where the Messiah was going to come from. So God had already arranged things for Mary and Joseph to be in that area for the birth of Christ. And if God had wanted His Son to have come to an opulent place, I believe there's no doubt that He could have arranged for Jesus to have been born at the Herodium. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that no, no, Amanda. I appreciate. Yeah, any time anyone has a question that goes back to Scripture, ask it. That's a great question, and I love your. Don't you be sorry. That's a great question. What the Bible says is that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All of the manger areas, all of the shelters where animals would have come to have gotten out of the elements and the weather, all of those would have been in those little caves that dominate the landscape there. Yeah. So that's a great question. It's a good question. Jesus could have been born anywhere God decreed for Him to have been born. And while... Herod is three miles away at the Herodium living that kind of lifestyle. Being the king, the real king comes into the world in a place that's similar to that. And Mary delivers, wraps him up in the swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And my question to you is why? 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 Well, think about it like this. Who were the first to come? Say it out loud, own it. You've got the right answer. Shepherds. The shepherds were the first to come. And you've been taught this before, and so I won't go into great detail, but you know this. The the shepherds were not the upper crust of society. The shepherds were lowly. The shepherds in their work, uh, it, was, it was very dirty. The shepherds, here's the point, were among the most humble of any sect of humanity in that part of the world. And God says, look, there are no barriers. And wow, aren't we thankful tonight 
that there are no barriers. There are no big eyes, little U's. There, there is equal access for everyone to come to Jesus. Born in the most humble of settings so that the shepherds could come, but before they leave Bethlehem, also visited by the Magi, who brings him those great gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The humble had access to the king, and the wealthy had access to the king. And that means that you and I, we have access to the king. All right, that's all I've got to say about that, and you're glad. So we'll stop there and turn our attention to our prayer time here at the end. Is there anyone that has a name to highlight on the prayer list or anything that we need to move or change about it or add to it? Yes. All right.